into week number two of our study on Hebrews. Uh, a really fun one this morning, by the way, boys and girls. Here we go. Just going to lay the groundwork right now. Spiritual immaturity, right? Everybody goes, yes, let me come to church and hear more about that. This is not going to be like a wonderful, lovely, rosy, lift you up kind of sermon. It's going to be a pretty penetrating gut check sermon for this morning. I just want to lay that groundwork right there. And with that and talking about that, we understand that there comes a time in every person's life when they need to realize that the way that they have done things just won't do anymore. Case in point, I've got this really cute picture up here, guys. Like, let's, oh. I mean, it's okay to suck on a pacifier when you are a toddler to help to comfort and to soothe you. Next picture. It ain't okay to suck on a pacifier as an adult, no matter how bad your day is. And just so you think that this is like some ha-ha funny internet picture, this is like for real. I, like, I don't know why I spent my time going down this rabbit trail this week, but this is evidently some sort of a trend with adults. There are adult pacifiers. If you're interested, you can buy one for $5 off of this website. I don't know how well they sell. And adult pacifiers is so weird to me. Wearing a diaper is perfectly acceptable and preferable when you are not potty trained, but it's just really, really disturbing on an adult. Carrying around a blanket or a stuffed animal for security is common and expected for toddlers and children, but it just doesn't work for an adult going into the office or into the marketplace. Now, two things here. By the way, does anybody know Linus's last name on the Peanuts? Cartoon. Anybody ever catch his last name? Van Pelt. There you go. All right. If you didn't know it, now you've got bonus information. It has nothing to do with anything, but I like to keep you guys on your toes. And while we're at it, last picture really quickly, Amanda, could you go back to that? The Snuggie or any form of the Snuggie or any alternative, I am convinced, is just an adult security blanket. That's all it is. You ever think about that one before? Like, Crystal always tells me, I literally, every Christmas comes up and she throws hints like, Hey, you know what would be really nice? Like, I would love a Snuggie. And I'm like, I cannot bring myself to buy a Snuggie. So sorry, dear, you're going to buy it for yourself if you want it. One of my favorite movies back from 1983 is the movie Mr. Mom. And without a doubt, my favorite part, of that, how many of you have not seen Mr. Mom? Oh, Sarah Gross, do yourself a favor and go watch that. My favorite part of the entire movie is the relationship that one of the children in the movie has with his blanket. Kenny has this insane relationship with his blanket. Do you remember what they call that blanket in the movie? A whoopee, right? And the whole movie really is centered around so much of the dad trying to get rid of Kenny's whoopee. I mean, he's trying everything, trying to talk it and into this. And then they have this climactic scene in the movie. Listen, Ace, you and I have to have a man-to-man -man talk here about your whoopee. 
Your whoopee's looking bad, bud. Now, wait a minute. Now, listen to me. I understand that you little guys start out with your whoopies and you think they're great, and they are. They are terrific. But pretty soon, the whoopee isn't enough. You're out in the street trying to score an electric blanket, or maybe a quilt. And the next thing you know, you're strung out on bedspreads, Ken. That's serious. Now, give me the booby. No. Kenny, come on, man. No. Okay. Give it to me for a couple of days. If it doesn't work, you got the whoopee back. Please. You got a lot of guts. to myself, please? Absolutely. You got it. I love that. Could I just have a moment to myself? Suffice to say, guys, there are some things that are appropriate only at a certain age. And likewise, there are things that are inappropriate based on someone's level of maturity. There are ways of acting that are perfectly in line with being a child, and then there are ways of acting as an adult that are completely unexpected. And I want you to watch this next video and think to yourself, have I ever acted like this? Now we laugh at that, and we probably laugh at that because it's so over the top, but I also believe we laugh because there's just a smidge of truth all at the same time. And as we're laughing, let me pose something to you. How many of us act in a similar way when it comes to our faith? How many of us would be big enough to admit that we have similar tantrums when it comes to life in the church? And with our faith, and suddenly we aren't laughing anymore, are we? Because if we have enough self-awareness, we would likely admit 
that in ways large and in ways small, we have become quite immature and can be quite immature when it comes to our journey of faith. We began last week starting our study in Hebrews by holding high and exalting the name that is above all names, the person who is supreme over all, Jesus himself. What I tried to do is I tried to get us to see that if we don't have a proper view of Jesus in all of his majesty, in all of his splendor, then we're starting in a really bad place when it comes to our worship. And that's a necessary place to start in light of our text for this morning, what we're going to be talking about this morning, spiritual immaturity. And before I launch into our text for this morning, I want you to consider something. And I want you to hold this question as we work through things this morning. What is your whoopee in the faith? You see, I believe that each of us has something, or sometimes we have some things in our life that give us comfort or make us feel good about ourselves. We have beliefs and we have mechanisms in place that tell us one thing about our growth, one thing about our maturity spiritually. In fact, it's really much worse than that. It's worse than we realize. I think there are things that we tell ourselves, things that we do to make us feel good about ourselves and say, you know what? Like, I'm, I'm good with Jesus. I'm good with God. I'm in a great place. It was this lack of maturity, this holding on to, if you will, whoobies that the author of Hebrews talks about when he starts in Hebrews chapter 5. You have your Bibles, you turn there, your devices, get them to Hebrews 5. And towards the end of Hebrews 5 and in verse 11, the author says this, There's much more that we would like to say to you about this. The author has just talked a whole lot about some high theology, and he's been talking about Jesus being a greater high priest, greater than a name that he brings up. Melchizedek is the name he brings up. And he's like, we would like to go more in depth with this, but, but we can't do that. It's very difficult to explain to you, especially because you are spiritually dull, and you don't seem to listen. You've been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You're like babies who need milk and you cannot eat solid food. And for someone who lives on milk, it's, they're still an infant. They don't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. He continues on in chapter 6. So let us stop going over the basics of the teachings about Christ again and again, and let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. You don't need further instruction about baptisms and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Those are always like, those are like major parts. Not only were they major parts of the Jewish faith, but it just so happened those were the things that carried over that were a major part of the Christian faith. And what he was saying is like, guys, we are getting stuck in these six things over and over again. And it's not that you forgot them and you need to be reminded of them. You need to be retaught and you need to relearn these things over and over and over again. And what he's saying is this stuff is is basic, it's elementary, and at some point we need to move beyond this into the deeper things of the faith. And he says in verse 3, and so God willing, we will move forward to further understanding. 
Now, along with that, guys, one of the scariest parts of Scripture, at least to me, is found in Matthew chapter 7, which is a really interesting and foundational part of Jesus' teaching and his message. It's the end of his famous Sermon on the Mount, and he says these very chilling words in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21. Not everyone who calls out to me Lord, Lord, will actually enter the kingdom of heaven. Just stop and think about that line for a moment. Jesus wasn't just saying these words. This wasn't just written down to people who were disciples back in Jesus' day. It's for everybody today too. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and we cast out demons in your name and we performed many miraculous uh, things and many miracles in your name. And then this line right here, this verse right here is haunting. But I will reply, but Jesus will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Now, there there are two phrases that I don't know about you, but I don't think that I ever want to hear them from Jesus. I never knew you, and get away from me. I mean, guys, this, for someone who in Scripture, he, he never had a problem associating or being around sinners and unclean people who oozed grace and compassion in so many scenarios. How damning is it that he would say to a group of religious people, mind you, these are people he's talking to who think that they are A-OK with Jesus. I'm on Jesus' good side. How horrifying is it to hear him say, I never knew you. Not, not, I don't know you as if they've never crossed paths before. It's not like Jesus doesn't know these people's names, but he says that I never knew you. Guys, you thought that you knew me, but I never knew you from the get-go. And then what does he say? Get away from me. I mean, I could just stop there and let you chew on that one for a little bit. It's haunting. I hope that it haunts you. And guys, my goal this morning is not to scare anyone or to have anyone walk away from here questioning their salvation or faith. Like, oh, geez, Ryan really shook me this morning. I don't, like, I don't know. Am I saved or am I not? Am I? No, my goal this morning, my intent this morning is to have each person in here to take a personal inventory of where they stand when it comes to your devotion and your allegiance to Christ. To, to take stock of your maturity in the faith. Because here is what I really think, and I only know this to be true because I have to do this constantly in my own life too. I think that some of us think that we are much further along in the faith than we really are. And I don't know that I could really stand it if I get to the end of everything. And I believe this to be true because the Bible tells me you teachers, you preachers, you pastors will be held to a higher standard at the end of all things based on the people that you led. And I don't know if I can get to the end and I can look at you and be like, oh, you know what, you're, you're a really good person. And the whole time that you have started your faith and you've sat right here in this chair and guess what you have done your entire life? Sit right here in this chair and never move to deeper things in the faith. 
I've been reading, and I did read and work through a fascinating book this week. Uh, it's Dean and Sarah's, and the name of the book is The Unsaved Christian. That tells you know how great the book is. It's a great title. It has everything to do with what Jesus talks about here in Matthew 7, and it has everything to do with the passage of Scripture that we already read in Hebrews 5 and 6. And, and Sarah starts the book off with this very sobering thought. He says this, In many parts of the U.S., there is rarely confusion on where you stand spiritually. Either you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. But here's where I want to kind of focus my time this morning. In many other parts of the United States, many people think they're Christians, but they have no concept of the severity of sin, the necessity of repentance, the message of grace, or the overall message of the gospel. They think they're just fine with God and that God is fine with them because they aren't atheists and they've been to church before. And then listen to this line. It's almost like you have to help those kind of people get lost so they can actually be saved. They believe in God, but they do not believe their sin has done anything to separate them from him or cause them to need the Jesus that they claim to believe in. And here's what I'm going to say right now at this point, because I think we so often have a problem saying, oh, it's, oh, it's all those people out there, like, oof, don't touch, that'll make you dirty, that'll, like, that'll pull you down. Here's what I'm talking about this morning. I'm talking about something inside the church that is terribly, terribly dangerous. English preacher George Whitfield said this, do not flatter yourselves of being good enough because you are morally so, because you go to church, because you say the prayers, because you take the sacrament, because you are baptized, and because you, uh, you, know, you take communion and you give, therefore you think no more is required of you. Alas, you are deceiving your own souls. Jesus preaches to this, and he comes to the Pharisees, and he says, you guys are so careful to tie the tiniest of little things, but do you know what you guys are missing the entire time? The weightier things of faith justice and mercy and compassion and forgiveness and grace. Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, based on that quote I just gave from George Whitfield, it says this, Your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. And when your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. And then listen to this in verse 23. But when your eye is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light that you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. And I know that there is at least one person in here this morning thinking, in much the same way that the disciples thought when Jesus said that they would deny him and turn their backs on him and run away, there is at least one person here at everything I've said to this point so far and says, not me. Can I tell you something with all love and sincerity? If you are a person sitting here this morning does not think that you need the grace and the mercy of Jesus every single day, and you're sitting here this morning and everything I've said, you say, mm -mm. I don't know what he, I don't know who he's preaching to, probably this person right next to me here, but it's not me, then you don't get it. And you don't get the gospel. As the late Dallas Willard said in his book, Renovation of the Heart, he says this, Perhaps the hardest thing for sincere Christians, or at least those who believe themselves to be Christ followers, to come to grips with is the level of real unbelief in their own life. The idea that you can trust Christ and not intend to obey him is an illusion generated by the prevalence of an unbelieving, 
Christian culture. And you see, for, for far too long, guys, I believe that there are too many in the church who believe that they've been following Jesus when they've only been following a version of Jesus. And most often that version of Jesus is the version that, that we create, that you create, that other people create. It's a version that we've concocted in our minds and our hearts, a version that is safe and that is comfortable and that is remarkably generous toward us. Oh, maybe Jesus, maybe that guy over there, but not me. You remember Pharisee and tax collector, don't you? Pharisee, oh, I'm glad that I'm not like that tax collector over there. Tax collector says, God, what can I do? I'm messed up. I need your grace. Two very different attitudes. It's what Dean and Sarah and so many other watchers of the church call cultural Christianity. And guys, it is the disease that is rotting the core of the church from the inside out. And what's particularly sinister about it is, again, it's not an attack from the outside, but it's one that is crouched and it's waiting to pounce right here in our midst. So the question is, and what I want to take a look at and using scripture here as well, is what, what is cultural Christianity? Probably some of you have never even heard that phrase before. What is it? What does it look like? And why is it so important for us to lovingly and urgently push back against it and contend for biblical, gospel, Christ-centered, Christ-exalting Christianity and faith? And in a basic sense, what cultural Christianity really is, is a religion that superficially identifies itself as Christianity but it does not truly adhere to any part of the faith, or it really never expresses faith at all. It's a mutation of biblical faith where those who practice it assume that if I just get close enough to Jesus, if I just get close enough actually to some people who are really on fire for Jesus, then it will just rub off on me. Like, by association, I'll be good. By being close enough to them, who have and express that faith, just being there will make me acceptable. I heard, I heard it this way in a, this week in an article that I was reading. It's dipping your toes in the waters of faith instead of plunging all in. It's almost as if some are inoculated with Jesus, that they can get just enough of Jesus, have just enough contact with Jesus, that they don't need the full dose. You know that when you get like inoculated with something, they actually give you the thing. Low doses of it, so that you become immune to it. And I believe that in some ways we live our faith sometimes in that very same way. Just, just ooh, ooh, stop. Too much Jesus. Take. Okay, perfect. Right there. Good. And we get just enough that we become inoculated. We don't need the full dose. This is, guys, this is nothing new in our culture. Jesus experienced the very same thing in his own day. John chapter 6 is one of the most fascinating sections of Scripture for me. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. Jesus walks on water. Jesus announces and will announce, and what we're going to read here in just a minute, that he is the bread of life. And then this really interesting thing happens starting in verse 26. Again, remember all the stuff that he's just done. And it says that they found Jesus on the other side of the lake. They're looking for Jesus. Where did he go? And they asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus was never flattered. Jesus never gave in to this. And there's what he says. I tell you the truth, guys. You, you, you want me because I fed you. You want me because I gave good things to you. Not because you understand the miraculous signs. Not that you understand who I really am is what he's saying. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy 
seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. And they replied, oh, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? What wonderful, awesome, amazing things can you make us do, Jesus? And Jesus told them this. This is the only work that God wants from you. Listen. Guys, it can't get more basic than this. This is the work God wants from you. Not just them, but from me and from you and from all of us. Believe in the one that he has sent. They answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? Like, this is really bold, isn't it, right, by the way? Like, they're challenging Jesus right now at this point. After all, they said, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. My father did, and now he offers you the true bread of heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Guys, this is one of the boldest times that Jesus reveals himself to people. He's doing it right here, and people are missing it. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. And Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Continues on here in verse 41. It says, you know, like people are like, what in the world is this guy talking about? Coming down from heaven. He, and they said they start to murmur in disagreement because they said, you know, he, Jesus, this guy is saying, I'm the bread of life. I come down from heaven. And they said to themselves, isn't this Jesus like the son of Joseph? We, we know him. Like we know his father. We know his mother. How can he say I came down from heaven? But Jesus replied, stop complaining about what I said. Continuing on in verse 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats the bread will live forever. And this is bread which I offer to the world and I, that they may live. It is my flesh. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. We signed up for a lot of things, Jesus, but we did not sign up for this. People began arguing with each other about what he meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They asked. And then coming towards the end of this entire section, in verse 60, many of his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining, and so he said to them, does this offend you? Then what will you think if you see the Son of Man ascend to heaven again? The Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. The very words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But some of you do not believe me. In parentheses, but very important, for Jesus knew from the beginning which ones didn't believe, and he knew who would betray him. And then he said, that is why I said that people can't come to me unless the Father gives them to me. And then verse 66, at this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. You see, what happens in John chapter 6 is that these people who were with Jesus were just fans. They weren't followers. Guys, a cultural Christian, a fan, identifies with certain aspects of Christianity, such as good works and the good works of Jesus, but they reject the costlier aspects to be a biblically defined Christian, taking up your cross, forsaking all, dying to yourself. Those are not popular things. Those are not things that you just like, like, this is not like, hey, you know, here's New Heights Christian Church. We want you to just come die to yourself. Take up your cross every single day. There are a lot of people who be like, yeah, that's all right. I think I'll go to that church right over there. 
The gospel, guys, is often presented as a costless addition to somebody's life. Just add a little church going to your hobbies, add a little charitable giving to your list of good deeds, add the cross to the trophies on your mantle. Cultural Christianity allows us to slip faith on and off as easily as we would a t-shirt or a pair of pants. As it suits us, as it benefits us, based on the benefits that it does or does not allow to us. And in this way, many people just go through the motions of accepting Jesus with no accompanying surrender to his lordship. Guys, Christianity without Christ is just a religion. And religion, guys, as you well know, and as I've said many times, religion is not a savior. It will not do anything for you. Cultural Christianity is not true biblical Christianity. A true Christian is one who has received Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior, has taken on Christ's death and resurrection in their life as their substitute for sin, and that the Holy Spirit indwells that person and empowers that person in their life. Cultural Christianity means pursuing the God that we want instead of the God who is who he has revealed himself to be. It's a tendency to be too shallow in our understanding of God, wanting him to be more of a, you know, I just want God to be like a, a, a grandpa. Because just a gentle grandpa. Like we get that picture of God, don't we? Sitting on his rock or just like, oh, come on over here, sit on my lap. We, we want that kind of a God who spoils us and lets us have our way. It's sensing a need for God, but on our own terms. It's wanting the God that we have underlined in our Bibles without wanting to know the rest of God, too. It's God relative instead of God absolute, supreme. And certainly there's a lot more that I could say about what a cultural Christian is or what someone like that looks like, but I want to get at the heart of the problem and how this connects back to Hebrews 5 and 6. And Christian leader Albert Muller says it the best when it comes to the problem of cultural Christianity. This hits it right in the middle. The problem of cultural Christianity is that culture always predominates over the Christianity. Oh, but I'm strong enough. Oh, I'm smart enough. I'm wise enough. I won't let things influence me. I won't let things influence the way that I see Jesus. False. Every single time, culture will be stronger than Christianity. Cultural Christians could be thought of as almost Christians, but guess what? Almost Christians are just as lost as an atheist who would not believe, trust, or obey even on their best day. Almost Christians may feel like they have Jesus, but the tragedy is that unless they recognize their need for Jesus and they grow in their faith and they mature in their faith, they work out their salvation, Jesus does not have them. It doesn't matter a lick if you think you have Jesus. It matters everything if Jesus has you. To an almost Christian, they want Jesus without a gospel. And guys, that is simply not Jesus at all. You cannot separate Jesus from the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. Consider this for just a moment. There, there was no such thing. If I were to beam myself back to like first century and, and then beyond and then the church gets its start and I said, you know what, like... I like this whole Jesus thing, but I don't really like this part. And if I were to use the word cultural Christian, they would like be baffled. They'd be like, what are you talking about? There was no such thing as that in the early days of the church. In fact, to be a Christian was to be likely marked as a target of persecution and harassment and taking away everything in your life and quite possibly and really losing your life. 
The very term Christian was coined in the city of Antioch as a way to identify people who were followers of Christ. The first disciples were so much like Jesus that they were actually called by people little Christs. Unfortunately, the term has lost its meaning over the years. It's come to represent an ideology. It's come to represent a social class. It's come to be attached to really gruesome and horrible things rather than a lifestyle of obeying and being obedient to God. And this is why preacher Charles Stanley asked some really gut-check questions. I want you to listen to this. Why do you suppose that there are close to 100 million church members in America, yet they are not making much of a moral or spiritual impact? Why is it that on a Sunday morning, thousands of churches have more empty pews than they have full pews? Why is it the average Sunday school in America has less than 66 in attendance and that the average worship service has 84? Why is it that only 50% of the number on any church membership role can be expected to attend and to serve and to pour out their lives? If Christians really believe in a real heaven and a real hell, how can we be so silent? The answer to all of these questions, he says, is tragically simple. God's people have made a decision about Jesus, but they have never made a commitment to Jesus. Because there is a world of difference between a decision for Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus. Like, they couldn't be further apart. A decision is only a moment in time that's a gateway that leads you to the greater things of Christ and being a disciple of Jesus Christ. God's people have made a decision about Jesus, but they have not dedicated themselves to him. They are close to Jesus, but they have not been convicted by Jesus and his life. This is the problem of casual or comfortable or cultural Christianity. On a grand scale, cultural Christianity leads to spiritual immaturity, which connects us right back to where we started in Hebrews 5 and 6. And in Hebrews 5 and 6, the writer assesses that his readers are no further along in their spiritual growth than when they first started. I think that what you should be able to do, guys, at the end of every single year is you should be able to look back at your your year and say, am I any different at the end of this year? Am I any more like Christ at the end of this year than when I started? And am I any more like Christ in this year than I was three years ago, five years ago, ten years ago? And you need to ask that question very seriously, and you need to take it very seriously. You don't need to fudge things. Who are you fooling? Nobody. Yourself, maybe. But you're not fooling God. If you get to the end of your year, get to the end of a span of years, and you look back at like, what? I'm the same person I was 10 years ago in my faith. Problems exist. The writer in Hebrews says to the people, you should have moved on long ago to making disciples, to bearing fruit, but instead you're still dwelling on the basics. Guys, basics aren't bad. Basics are foundational. They're pillars. We need those. But at some point, you need to move into deeper waters. Luke chapter 5 is really fascinating. I'm not going to go there and read the whole section, but Jesus is preaching there, and the crowds are pressing in on him. I, I, I read this yesterday at an elders meeting, and, and Jesus gets in this boat, which coincidentally was owned by Simon Peter, and he says, push out, push out into the waters. And he says, you know, like, not, not deep enough. And he has this line that I, I just, it's been kind of in my mind for a long time. And he says, now go out to, to deeper waters. And I don't think Jesus is just talking about fishing here. 
think he's very specifically talking to Simon Peter and anyone who else would listen and have ears to understand that. You need to go deeper. And you don't need to go deeper just for the sake of being like, well, I'm a really deep person. You need to go deeper so that you know God better. And that your relationship with God grows stronger. In fact, here in, in Hebrews, he says that you people are too lazy to understand. The author speaks to this slowness of learning with three Greek words. The first one is very interesting to me. The first word that he uses in the Greek, not necessarily here in our English translation, means sluggish, dull, dimwit, negligent, or lazy. Guys, this writer is out and out calling his readers dimwits. I'm not really a great way to start a letter. I don't think it really would play off too well if I just stepped up here on a Sunday morning and be like, hey, dimwits. That's what the writer's doing. Why in the world would he do this? One reason, to get their attention. The same word was often used outside of the Bible in the context of a slave who had stopped listening and obeying to the master. In athletics, it was a word that would denote a competitor who was out of shape and who was lazy and who was sluggish. In the framework of this section in Hebrews, this sluggishness and this dim-wittedness is particularly unsettling given the length of time that these people have been in the faith. Like, these, these aren't baby brand new Christians. These are people who have been in the faith for a really long time. And the writer is saying, guys, seriously, why are we going over the same things again and again? I feel like I'm having the same conversations again and again with you. And how embarrassing would it be if someone showed up at college still working on their ABCs or their 123s? This is unthinkable, it's silly, and yet we do not think it's just as ludicrous and silly that some people can be in the church 10, 15, 20 years longer and not be past some of the elementary and foundational things of the faith. Like, we'd be like, eh, I mean, like, whatever, let them be. That's fine, it's cute. Like, no, it is not cute. It is not okay. It is not right. It is absolutely more important that we get these things and, and, and go beyond these things to deeper things. Guys, baby food and milk serve their purpose. But you know what? God has a juicy steak just sitting there for us. He has a succulent dish sitting there for us, waiting and prepared and it is foolishness to think that we would intentionally or unintentionally just turn away from the best things for lesser things. Somebody has said this, these milk drinkers are in a perilous situation because they have neither an understanding nor an inclination toward deeper matters of the faith by which one understands the importance and the means of perseverance. And this is why it is so incredibly important. It's not important just to be like, go, go be deep, go be deep, all right, get deep. Like, I, 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 people say that, and I get tired of it. Like, what, what does that mean, to be deep? To be deeper in the faith was so important for the Hebrews because do you remember the context this writer is writing into? Persecution and death and trial and the temptation to go back to their old way of life. Guys, is it any different in our day? Some of you might have wonderful, rosy, lovely lives that never have problems, but I know for the rest of us, it's a struggle every single day. We have to have perseverance. And to be perseverance, we need to grow deeper in the faith. We must have, we have to, we desperately need to turn from spiritual immaturity and dig deep in the faith. Endure in the face of difficulty. Here's the really inconvenient truth. 
is that God's best sometimes requires walking through a mess, guys. Health and flourishing sometimes, and I would say oftentimes, only comes via a painful experience. And if we lack the maturity that God so wants to put in us, we will melt in the most important moments. The truth is, guys, that we all have an inclination and a propensity to be attracted to lesser versions of the gospel. In fact, in this book that I've been reading, I said The Unsaved Christian, it says this, America is the land. I would just insert into that. Let's just make it real personal. Connersville is a land of overchurched and underreached. And guys, the church has the ability to either foster cultural Christianity and spiritual immaturity and baby, or we have a chance to cripple it. And we cripple it with one thing. Not by going out and being like, how could you be such a baby, immature Christian? That's not the way that we cripple this. That's just stupid, and it's inconsiderate, and it's not very mature itself. The way we cripple it is with the unashamed and the untainted gospel. Gospel clarity is the antidote to the rampant confusion in our churches and in our culture. The gospel shows that God makes the demands, that he has met those demands in Christ, and that he calls every one of us to trust and to follow him and to obey. And you know, I think the daunting task that we face in our own day is taking Jesus to people and to places where where Jesus is admired, but he's not worshipped. Where people view themselves as a good person, or at least I'm not as bad as the next guy over here, who don't understand that they need to be saved or to continue growing in their faith to produce fruit that is consistent with being a disciple of Jesus. And guys, may we be the kind of Christ followers. May we be the kind of Christ-honoring church that turns comfortable Christianity on its head and calls all of those who would claim Christ to be Christians not by culture, but Christians by conviction and to live out those convictions, and to show our allegiance in Jesus Christ. There's this line in the book, Dean and Sarah says this, because he's, he's actually telling his own story about growing up in church and being a good little church boy, and then coming to a moment in his life when he was 13 years old, and he was at a camp retreat for a FCA. And he said, a man stood before them, and he preached the gospel unashamedly. And he laid it out there and he said, if you are without Christ, then you are not going to make it. And he said to himself, I was, he goes, I finally came forward and I accepted Christ, but he goes, I was probably the only person that's ever come in forward and accepted Christ and been angry about it. And he wasn't angry because of what Christ had done for him, but he was angry because he had sat in church his entire life and nobody had ever told him the gospel. That he was a sinner who needed to repent and was in need of Jesus Christ to save him. In fact, he says, the cross and the resurrection could not have existed and it would not have changed my Christianity. Is that true about any of our lives in here? That if the cross and the resurrection were not a thing, we could still continue to be living our faith. If that is so, then it is not faith in Jesus Christ. If that's so, then it is not faith and it is not the gospel. Guys, the most important consideration in life is not what you have and what you do not have and who you know and who you do not know. 
the most important consideration in life is what has you. What are you captured by? What are you captivated with? What are you dominated and controlled by? Are you committed to Jesus? Are you obedient to Jesus? Are you sold out to him? Are you turned over to him? Are you following him? Are you seeking his guidance? Are you doing his will? Are you acting on his commandments? Are you engaged in his ministry? Are you doing his bidding with all of your being? Is Jesus Christ number one in your life or is he just a leftover? Is he just secondary? The early church father Augustine says it this way and I end my sermon with this. He says in one of his books, you, God, have made us for yourself. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. And I have a feeling this morning that there are a lot of us who come in and we are restless people. Frittering about going from one thing to another and hoping that that thing in our life will finally fulfill us and make us happy and give us true worth and standing and identity. And it won't if it's not Jesus. As I do so many times and I've done so many times lately, if you are here this morning and you are in one of two boats, and guess what? One of us, we're, probably, we're going to be in one of the two boats. You're here this morning and you have, you may think that you have Jesus and that you at one time claimed Jesus, but you have never given your life to Jesus, surrendered your life to Jesus, made Jesus the Lord of your life. Not just a decision, but you are becoming a disciple of Jesus. If you've never done that, you most certainly need to make that your point this morning. Do not leave this place thinking and fooling yourself that, well, I, I know Jesus, I'm close enough. Like, I'm good enough. No, there's no good enough. There's only Jesus. That is a standard for goodness, and we give our lives to that. Or secondarily, there are another group of us in here who have claimed Christ, and we are doing everything within our power to try to live for Christ and to bear fruit for Christ. We're not there. We're still fooling ourselves into thinking, well, you know, I'm doing enough. Like, you know, I, I, I gave my life to Jesus. Did you really? Did you really do that? And are you still doing that? Every, it's not a one-time-in-life decision. It's an every day, over and over again, I am giving my life to you, Jesus. You take control. Have me. Have your way. Your will. That's you this morning, and you need prayer, and you need to make a decision this morning, whatever that may be. I'm not going to put it on your heart. I'm not going to make it for you, whatever it is. That if you need prayer in just the simplest sense on some of that stuff, I would love to do that for you and to pray for you. But first, can we pray as a team comes up here and they get ready to lead us in worship again? Lord, I pray with everything this morning. And I don't pray this for anybody else. I just pray this very personally and specifically for myself. And I pray that everybody else in here would pray it very specifically and personally. Is that if we do not really know you, and better yet, if we are not known by you, that we would make that happen today, right here, right now, in this place. And it may scare us and freak us out and be like, how in the world? I know what my life is. How in the world can I live that? That's such a weighty thing to live up to. Lord, we only ever do it through your power, your strength, and your grace. And so I pray this morning that you would give every one of us the boldness to just admit that we may not really know you 
like we think we do. We'd be courageous enough to admit that. That we would have repentant hearts that would say, this is not okay. We want to come back to you, God. We to be made new, made whole in your name. We pray all of these things in the wonderful and majestic name of Jesus Christ. Amen.